the rest of us are in Luke chapter 15, verses 25 through 32, wrapping up Luke 15 this morning. Luke 15, 25 through 32. Um, this chapter began, if you remember, with Luke's Holy Spirit driven investigative report we learned from chapter 1 as Jesus we know also was headed toward Jerusalem chapter 9 verse 51 to be our sin bearer Luke is giving us this this again Holy Spirit driven this investigative report how God worked through Dr. Luke to give us this account this historical narrative of the Lord Jesus Christ his his ministry his birth his ministry his death burial and resurrection and we learned last week as we got to verse 1 in this chapter that the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him that's drawing near to Jesus the Pharisees and the scribes they grumbled and they said this man he's talking about Jesus receives sinners and eats with them so verse 3 he that's Jesus told them this parable remember to keep this in context very important to them in this verse is the Pharisees and the scribes. But just for a little bit of background, a little bit of context, what is it that Jesus has been teaching and preaching and sharing, and, and, and not sharing, but teaching with authority, I should say, uh, that they were drawing near to him? We know that Jesus was healing with authority. Jesus was teaching with authority, healing people with diseases, delivering people who were demon-possessed, even raising the dead, all of which we said were, were signs and, 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 and validating and confirming and authenticating his kingship, his lordship, his deity, God in the flesh. Jesus has come. The king has come and he's inaugurating his kingdom and he's demonstrating what that means. He's also been calling people we've seen to repent. That means to turn and to follow him. And sometimes with hard words, what that looks like, what it means to be his follower, what it means to be his disciples, we looked at that. That is the message that Jesus has been preaching. He's declaring his kingship, his lordship, what it means to be a disciple, calling everyone to repent. That was the message they were drawing near to him to hear. Now the grumbling Pharisees were the ones that we mentioned, it's important to mention it again, who by their obedience to the law of God, coupled with their man-made rules, they were on the in with God. They, they thought that keeping their strict rules, keeping their their, their you know, man-made rules somehow made them acceptable before God. And therefore, that's where we get the word Pharisee from, they separated themselves from those sinners, the outsiders. They were the insiders. They, 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 they were the insiders. But, and the question they had, I think we could say, is that you know, if, this, if this Jesus, who calls himself a rabbi, sent by God, so, so a real prophet of God, he would, he would know who these are. They, he should separate them himself from these folks like we do. We separate ourselves from, from the world. We don't want to be polluted with the world. Here's Jesus having dinner with them and, and fellowship with them. And the sinners tax collectors were drawing near to Jesus. They were the immoral ones. They were the ones who didn't obey the law of God. They were the drunkards. They were the prostitutes. They were the thieves. They were the tax collectors working for the Roman government. So Jesus' parables, as we see in this chapter, answers the questions, why are you eating with them? Why are you not separated from them? Don't you know they're sinners? And of course, and of course the question we also must ask ourselves is whether or not these sinners and tax collectors are drawing near to our message. If we're walking with Jesus, who are we 
drawing near to us? Who are we sharing the good news with? It's a lesson I think we have to keep in mind. One of the main reasons we learn that Jesus eats with these sinners and tax collectors is because God pursues and rejoices over sinners who repent and come home. We saw that already. God is like the good shepherd who pursues and rescues lost sheep, verses 4 through 7. God is like the woman who loves a valuable coin, excuse me, loses a valuable coin and searches diligently until she finds it, verses 8 through 10. And we, saw, we said that's a wonderful picture of the missionary heart of God. A God who seeks and finds joy when he finds recovers his lost children through the gift of repentance and faith. One of the things that I was studying this week, and I, I just want to take a short little bunny trail, um, because there are some people, and it's bad theology, but they, they see themselves, they see the scriptures as Jesus is the one who loves me, and God is the one, God the Father is the one who's angry with me. I've heard that actually said. The God of the Old Testament, the God, you know, he's the vindictive mean one. It's the son who loves me, and if it wasn't for the son who loves me, we would all be doomed. That is not only a violation of the Trinity, the triunity of God, one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, but it's very poor theology. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, we know the verse, God is love. Well, if you keep reading that text, it says, In this the love of God has made manifest among us. The triune God has been made manifest that God, the Father, sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we have loved God, it's the Father, but that he loved us and sent his Son, see the Father and the Son, to be a propitiation for our sins, to die as atoning sacrifice, wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. Listen, God loves. The Father rejoices. That's what we're learning over people who repent and believe. Zephaniah 3.17 says this. You can mark this in your Bible. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. That's what we've been seeing. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, is a God of love. Oh, how much and magnificent is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not that the Father is angry and the Son loves. It's God who loves. It is the work of the triune God. God the Father has planned it. Jesus has purchased our sins. And the Spirit seals us. One God in all of salvation. And that's what we saw last week with the prodigal son. If you remember, he, he, he had this request that he wanted to share his share of the inheritance while the father was still alive. It was a very disrespectful, dishonoring request. It basically said, Dad, I, I wish you were dead. I-, I want my stuff, and I want my stuff now. I don't want nothing to do with you. Just give me what is mine. And after living this sinful, extravagant, self-indulgent life, he repents and he comes home. And we saw last week the father running out to his repentant son, lifting up his robe, bearing the shame, rejection, all that the son deserved he took upon himself. And then he embraced him. As I mentioned last week, he kept kissing him. That's the Greek verb. And then celebrated not only with his son, we saw last week, but with everyone. Placed a robe on him, ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, a sign of sonship and family restoration. Goes and kills a fattened calf and has a party. It's so much fun. There's so much celebration. There's so much joy in this house that the eldest son hears the music and the dancing that's going on. 
<laughs> he hears the music and, he, and he's drawing near. Now that's a party, right? Man, there's something going on over there. It looks like a lot of fun. That's where we pick up our parable. As we look at the elder son. Remember verse 11 in this text says the man who had two sons. Parable of the sons. The, oldest, the youngest son last week, the older son this week. Two points. Doesn't mean it's short. It's not. Um, defining sin. That's what Jesus wants to show us. That there are two ways to sin. Or live in sin. Act out in sin. And then of course discovering the gospel. So, let's look at our text. First thing we need to understand that we see in the text is where is the elder son in verse 25? He's out in the field. He's managing, he's caring, he's tending for the family's land. Now, his older son, verse 25, was in the field. He's where he's supposed to be. He is doing what he is supposed to do. His rightful duty. He's taking care of the family wealth. As the elder son in the home, he has the responsibility to make sure everything goes the way it's supposed to go, to guard and take care of the family assets. It's one of the reasons why in that culture, the elder son received a double portion of the family's wealth. He was responsible. The final responsibility fell on the elder son. Verse 25, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, what, what's with this, right? What, what these things mean, meant? And he said to him, your brother has come home. Your father has killed a fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But, verse 28b, he was angry and refused to go in. Now, parables are meant to draw us into a picture. And I, and I want this, this picture to resonate right in your mind. Think about it. There's this dishonoring son, a squandered all that he had, brought disrespect upon his family. He's in the home, and a party's going on. There's the elder brother walking toward the house. Maybe he got a glimpse in. Maybe he saw his younger brother, but no, he's heard the party going on. He just came home, but there's no party going on for him. He's out in the field. He, he's doing what he's always done and what he's supposed to do. The elder son, we see, is outside the feast. He's looking in. And where's the younger son? He's inside the feast of the father. Feel that. See that. Jesus is making it clear to these Pharisees and scribes, to them, where he's teaching his parable, to who's in the feast and who's not in the feast. Who is on the inn and who is not on the inn. Who's looking out from the outside and looking in. If you remember back in chapter 13 of Luke, when Jesus taught about the narrow door, door and once it was closed, you could knock all you want. Hey, hey, we did this and we did that. Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I'm not opening the door. When, but he says, when you see Abraham, verse 28 of chapter 13, when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. People will come from the east, the west, the north, and the south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God and behold, some are last will be first, and some are first will be last. Remember, that warning was for those who just took it upon themselves, who simply assumed that we are in the inn, for whatever reason, invited to the banquet of God. Just as these religious leaders believe, because of their law-keeping, they're in. You see, there are two ways to save yourself. There's two ways to try to save yourself, try to justify yourself, 
One is, we know moral performance. That's what Jesus is teaching. And the other one is, I'll do whatever I want. That's, that's the elder son, the youngest son, and the oldest son. Those who approve, who approve, who approach life like the Pharisee, they, they have these strict observance, they have their rules, they have their regulations, and somehow they just keep doing what's right, and they believe at that point they are accepted into the kingdom of God. It's simply by their performance. That's one way. That's the moral performance of saving yourself. Then there are those like the younger son, whose motto is, I'll do whatever I want. I'll do whatever I think I should, and I make all the rules and regulations. I, I'll do as I see fit. You're your own person, right? Self-realization, self-discovery, self-actualization. How much better if we just get rid of all this religious stuff, all this authority? Two ways to be lost. And sometimes the Pharisees look at people, those who keep the law, who, who have the rules and regulations, that, that follow their own commands, or think they're, they're, they're following everything they're supposed to do, they look down on the younger brothers, don't they? And say, man, you know what? You need God. I could see that. They, they say that about me. After hearing my story, yeah, boy, I'll tell you what, you really needed God. Well, I think we all need God. That's the point. And when they say, you know what? You need God, they really, you know what? That, that's the elder brother talking. You need him, I don't. And the real danger is that many of the elder brother types are in the church. You see, it's easy and clear when those who are the younger brothers are outside and are lost. They wake up with the hangovers, the drug addictions, the next high, the multiple sexual relationships. Your lostness is, is clear and evident to everyone. But that's not the only way to be lost. That's not the only way to be outside the banquet of God. It's the only way to be separated from God because of your sin. It's not that being immoral or doing whatever you right, or doing what you think is right is okay. That's not what it's saying. What, what, the, what the text is telling us with these two brothers is there's a way to live immoral and there's a way to justify yourself by being moral. Two definitions of sin. The late Dr. Tim Keller in The Prodigal God, who I leaned heavy on this passage, this message. If you have not read the book, go get it, Prodigal God. He explains it this way. The elder brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of it. The elder brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of it. It is not his sins, is committing the sins like his brother did. It's not his sins that created the barrier between him and his father. It's the pride he had in his moral record. It's not his wrongdoing, but his righteousness that is keeping him from sharing in the feast of the father, end quote. The text says he was angry and refused to go in, verse 28. That word refused in the original language means he was explosive. Blowing up, explosive, angry. The elder brother was infuriated by his father's freely offering forgiveness to his son. He wanted his brother to pay for his sins. And he simply refused to share in the father's joy. He's not going to share in the joy of his brother's salvation. But what does the father do again? The father again, look at the text, takes the initiative, comes out and pleads with the son to join the celebration. His father came out, he said, I'm not going to go in, but his father came out and entreated him. The, the younger son is lost, we know that. 
He was lost and found. He was out there living and squandering. That's a no-brainer. He shamed his father. He disrespected the family. He slept around. And we say, that's someone who's spiritually lost. But Jesus' point is that the oldest son is outside as well. But for different reasons. His, min- his sin is manifested by being utterly unmoved. Being angry and unmoved by his brother's safe return. The eldest son resents the grace that his father lavished upon this unworthy sinner who squandered everything. The father is filled with love, joy, and celebration, and this elder son is what? Angry, bitter, and resentful. And that's what we see here. Look at the text. The son begins to recite how all that he's done for his father, his work, his service, how he acted in obedience, and that was his way in. That, that was the eldest son way into the family and, and, and the way to maintain his acceptance into the family. Look what it says, verse 29. Look, talking to his dad, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, although he wouldn't go into the party. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Notice the similarities, family. The younger son in verse 12 said, give me my inheritance. I want it now. I don't want you out my stuff. Here the eldest son is saying the same thing. I want my stuff. I don't care about you. I don't care about the brother. I don't care how much joy and celebration you have. Where's my young goat? Where's my goat? I've been faithful. You're not being very generous, dad. Both boys are going to tell the father what they want. Both boys want things from the father and not to serve, to love their father, but out of selfishness rather than loving him and serving him for his own sake and for the sake of love. The eldest son, unlike the father, look at, look at the text. The father slaughters the fattened calf and invites everyone. Notice what it says. He's like, I want a goat to celebrate with my friends. Not you, not my brother, not everybody else in the house. And he excludes both his father and his brother from his little party. That's what I want just for me. That's what the Pharisees do. They they separate themselves. They see no need to embrace sinners and tax collectors. Both were lost. One by breaking all the rules and the other one by keeping all the rules. One by telling God, I'll do what I want, and the other one by telling God, I'll obey you, but you owe me. You owe me. You owe me a good life. You owe me, with, with, I don't want to have any trouble, difficulties, hardship in my life. I prayed hard. I give my money. I go to Bible study. I read my Bible. You owe me. Putting God in our debt. And the reality is that the Pharisees and the scribes were using their own moral performance, their own rule-keeping, as a way to be accepted. We fall into that trap quickly as Christians. I obey you, you owe me. Why is this hardship and difficulty coming my way? Haven't I done all I'm supposed to do? This is using God to get things rather than to get God himself. A couple things in his text that reveal that truth of, the, of, the, of this attitude of the elder son, that my obedience is now causing you to love me and accept me by what I do, and now you owe me. Look what it says. The first, as I mentioned earlier, it's resentments. 
When the brother doesn't get, look, you owe me. This is what I have done. I have done all this. Why, where's my cow? Where's my goat? His goal in his life was stuff, things other than a relationship with his father. When moral performance and our stuff becomes our God and we don't get what we think we should get or we get stuff that we don't think we should have, we get angry, we get ballistic, we get get, um, hostile. Our goal in life is stuff. Our goal in life is things. Our goal in life is to have things. And when you block that, when you stop me from getting it, I get angry. And sometimes our anger is, if, if we really are honest with ourselves, is because I want that and you're not giving it to me. When Jesus is teaching the Pharisees and us today is that our priority is God himself. Not stuff, but intimacy with him. Hebrews chapter 11. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whatever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is and rewards those, excuse me, who seek him. The reward is God himself. If God is a means to anything else, if God is a means to get anything other than God himself, no matter how good or right or whatever it may be, it's a disordered love, as Augustine, Augustine said. It's pursuit of a wrong goal of the wrong ultimate treasure. If the older son, the elder son was in pursuit of the father, the pleasure and joy of the father, he would what? Rejoice when the father rejoiced. And when is that? When sinners repent and come home. And if you catch the irony, look at verse 29 again. All these years I have served you. That, that Greek word is doulos. You know the word. It means slave. What he's saying, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've been slaving and slaving and slaving. Now, the younger come, son comes home. He says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'm not even worthy to be called a slave. Just make me a higher hand, a slave, a slave, lower than a slave. And the father makes him his son. Here is a man who thinks he's a son, but in reality, he's placing himself as a slave. Philip Ryken says this, The elder brother was completely lost. Lost in his refusal to reconcile. Lost in his rejection of his father's joy. Lost in his striving for self-salvation. Lost in resentment for his brother's reward. And lost in the unrighteous desires of his own sinful heart. But he was lost mostly because he rejected his sonship. Seeing himself as a slave instead of a son. End quote. Man, I've been slaving for you. Meanwhile, the, elder, the younger son comes to himself and says, don't even, I, I, make me a hired hand. I don't even want to be a slave. I want to go lower. You see, his relationship with his father was a performance-based relationship. Again, Tim Keller says this, there was duty, D-U-T-Y, but no beauty, end quote. His service became slavery to him. Never served in love, only obligation. He really didn't, I don't think the eldest son understood what it means to be a son enjoying the pleasure of sonship. If he had, he would have had a glimpse of what it means to be the father and to have a son come home. He he could not see why his father was full of joy at the return of the prodigal. Legalism is obedience without relationship. Elder brothers come to God because they find elders 
an elder brother's Pharisaic type, legalistic type who work their way toward their salvation, come to God because they find him useful. Gospel-believing people find God beautiful. God is not means to a greater end. God is in and of itself the end. All the brothers do all the right things. Elder brothers, elder type brothers do all the right things. They read their Bibles, they go to church, they give their tithes, they get involved in ministry because of the results, the stuff that they get. When they don't get it, they get angry. They lose their joy. We should obey God, absolutely. We should serve God, absolutely, but not to get stuff but to get God himself, to adore him, to love him, to delight in God, to enjoy God, to show our love and adoration to the one true God for all that he is and all that he has done in our salvation. There's resentment in the elder brother. There's a lack of joy in the elder brother. And finally, there's superiority. Look at verse 29 again. (laughs) Look at all I've done. I've done everything you asked. I did everything I I, I obeyed you fully. And then in verse 30, what does he say? But when what? This son of yours, parents, you know the deal. All of a sudden, it's the spouse's kid, not yours, when they're in trouble. But this son of yours, not, not my brother, the son of yours came home. You killed a fattened calf. Look at all he's done. He devoured your property. He disobeyed you. I didn't do that. I, I got another quote. I, this, this, I want you to just listen carefully. It's a longer quote, but this is... Heart-wrenching in a way. If it pierces the heart, let it. By the grace of God. Listen to this. This is Richard Lovelace. He wrote a book called um, The Dynamics of Spiritual Life. Listen to what he says. Okay? Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their spiritual, excuse me, apart from their present spiritual achievements. In other words, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Christ apart from their present spiritual achievements are subconsciously, radically insecure persons, much less secure than non-Christians because of the constant bulletins they receive from the Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness they are supposed to have. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defense, defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles, other races, in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. Then he writes, They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness, but envy, jealousy, and other branches of the tree of sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity, end quote. What he's saying is there's these messages that we receive about righteousness and it's whose righteousness we're trying to obtain and that Christians who are trying to live up to that righteousness that they could never live, that's imputed to them by faith alone, when they're doing that, they get more and more and more and more insecure because it never happens. And the holiness of God is presented to them and they just keep running, 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 never to attain it. And they look down on others. That's what he's, That's a great quote. And because the older son, the elder son is basing his life not on the father's love and grace, but on stuff. He thinks he's supposed to get, he, he looks down on his poor, dirty, younger brother who is rebellious. That, that's happened. And we've said this before. Keller said this before. Religion is self-righteousness 
earning my way, doing what's right so God will love me. Religion is I'll obey God and therefore God will love me, accept me, forgive me on my merit, on my works, on my performance. That's religion. The gospel is God loves me and accepts me and forgives me because of the merit and the work and performance of Christ and therefore I will obey. Huge difference between the two. Defining sin, the elder brother, the younger brother. Obeying the law outside of God, disobeying the law outside of God. What's the gospel? Verse 31. And he said to him, the father said to him, Son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. I want to I first notice in, in, in discovering the gospel, God's pursuing patience. The son refused to go in the house, and verse 28 says he entreated him. He could have commanded him, but he entreated him. That word entreated is where we get the word parakaleo. You probably heard that word before. Parakletos is what the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will come. The parakletos will come. The one will come alongside you. The one who is for you. The one who speaks to you. The one who encourages you, speaks comfort and exhorts you and encourages you. The father comes right out and goes along his son and pleading with his son, come into the house, come to the feast, come to the celebration, but the son refuses. In fact, his refusal was, was very much like the disrespectful request of the inheritance of the younger son. Give me my money now, give me my land now. Elder son played a very special role in the celebrations of the home. And now the elder brother failed to join the party and that brought shame Disrespect to the entire family. His, his refusal was, was, a, was personal and, and a public disrespect and insult to his father, to his lost brother, and to all the invited guests. In other words, the response of the elder son refusal to go in is just as disrespectful and shameful in the eyes of the community than the younger son who took his inheritance and went off. But here, beautifully, in the midst of, of this dishonoring of the father, the father comes to him at the cost of his own humiliation. I, he won't come in. I'm going to go out to him. The, other, the elder brother was saying, I, I'm, not, I'm not going in. I'm not eating. I'm not dining. I'm not celebrating at the banquet with that sinner. The younger brother wanted the father's wealth, but not the father. See it, see it this way as well. One wanted stuff, and what did he do? He left home and broke the rules. One wanted wealth, and what did he do? He kept all the rules. Yet the father, in his kindness, in his patience, and in his goodness, didn't slap the oldest son across the mouth and bring him into the house. Yet he lovingly goes out and meets his son. Brings humility upon himself. Ken Bailey, in a, in a book called The Cross and the Prodigal, once again... He demonstrates, the father demonstrates a willingness to endure shame and self-emptying love in order to reconcile. It is almost impossible to convey the shock that must have reverberated through the banquet hall when the father deliberately left his guest, humiliated himself before all, and went out into the courtyard to try to reconcile with his older son. The same self-emptying sacrificial love is demonstrated visibly and dramatically on the same day in similar ways, for two different sons with different kinds of needs, earlier in the day, the father paid the price 
of self-emptying love in order to reconcile the prodigal to himself. Now he must pay the same price to try to win the elder son, end quote. What's interesting in this text, too, is the word son. The word son you see all throughout the text. I think it's used eight or nine times. And it's, it's a generic term. I think the term is, do I have it written down here? No, I don't. Yeah, you all. Son, son, son. In this text, when he says my son, it's the word technon. It's a different, it's a different word. It, 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 it's a more gentle word. It's a more loving. It's a more compassionate. It's a more intimate word. And you can hear the grieving, the, the painful, agonizing, compassionate love of mercy going out to this boy. Listen, son, my son, my boy. With endearing term, the tenderness of the father is calling the self-righteous elder son to the feast, showing the heart and the patience, the kindness of God toward this moralist who thinks I can earn my way in. The open-hearted father appealed to his son with all this affection. Again, again, again. We've seen this over and over and over again. Jesus is not saying, you hypocrites, you moralistic, hypocrite Pharisees, I'll never invite you in. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, even you, even you can come. No one's outside the love of God, family, no one. No one's outside the love and the grace of God, the moral, the immoral. Everyone needs the pursuing love of God, even the older brother types. The Pharisee types. Even those within a few months will be yelling, crucify him. As they murder, turn him over to be executed on the cross. Verse 32, it was fitting, he says, the father. That word fitting means actually necessary. It was necessary to celebrate and be glad for you. (laughs) You notice what he said, look what his father says. It was fitting, necessary to celebrate and be glad for this, your what? Your brother. I know you'd say, your son, I'm, I'm reminding you It's your brother. (laughs) Not just my son. He was dead. He's alive. Lost. He's found. A resurrection has occurred. Your dead brother's alive. What was lost has now been found. Such circumstances should, again, rejoice, uh, should result in rejoicing. Not questions about fairness and who got what or justice. Cosmic joy is released, we said, when sinners repent. When sinners repent. Being reconciled, not just for the immoral, but we see here the secret sinner, the moralist, the religious, the hypocrites, the ones who sins by doing all the right things for the wrong motives. And notice the connection. I want want you to see this. Like the elder brother in this parable, the religious leaders, remember, resented and, and, and were grumbling that Jesus gave the people and fellowship and ate with the people that were sinners. That's what they objected back in verse 2. Man, I can't believe this man. What does he do? He receives sinners, tax collectors, all these things, and he eats with them. That's exactly the protest of the elder brother. This old man's eating with this pig slop eating son of yours. You can, you can easily imagine the elder brother saying to his father, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Same thing. In this joyous invitation, we get to see how much Jesus loves everyone. All invited, the moral, the immoral. If only they would recognize who Jesus is, repent of their sins, embrace him with faith, and enjoy the father's love and joy. God loves the prodigal son, and God loves the elder brothers. 
What an invitation. One just has to recognize. One has to recognize our true spiritual condition. Elder or younger son. Then you can come. That's the heart of God. So we see the pursuing patience. Last we'll see the, the precious provision. Verse 31. Son you're always with me. All that I have of mine is what? Yours. All I have is yours. And I want you to know that's true. What he's saying is accurate. The father split the inheritance. One third went to the younger son. Two thirds went to the other son. The one third he squandered. And the two third belonged to the older brother. So let me ask you a question. What did the younger son pay to come back to the family? We saw it last week. He did nothing. Father ran out, gave him freely out of grace, his robe, the ring, the shoes, the fattened calf, a sign of sonship. What did it cost the son? Nothing. What did it cost the older son? Look at back to verse 12. When the youngest son said, Father, give me the share of property that is mine, that's coming to me, the scripture says, he, the father, divided his property between them. The father granted the younger son and the elder son the legal right to everything that was in the inheritance. We see that in verse 12. So, think about it. When the father's throwing this party for the prodigal son, he's spending the elder brother's inheritance. It belonged to the boy, the elder son. The younger son's restoration to full, full sonship cost him nothing but it came at a huge price for the elder son. Restoration, celebration, the party, the fattened cow, all that belonged to the elder son legally. You see, family, that's how forgiveness works. When you sin and hurt others, or others hurt you, there's a debt that needs to be paid. Someone puts a baseball through the window and smashes the window, it needs to be purchased. A price is paid. If someone hurts your reputation, sins against you deeply, there's a debt. There's a sense that you owe me, you hurt me. You have a choice to make. You could either make them pay it back by running your mouth, trying to harm them, talking smack about them, hope that they suffer, but then you become more like them and your heart gets hard. Or you can forgive them. You can absorb the cost in yourself. Forgiveness is always, always substitutionary. Somebody must suffer. And the only way the youngest son could have been restored to the family was at the elder son's expense. Grace and forgiveness is always free to the one who did the offending. Otherwise, it's not true. Grace or forgiveness, but it always cost the one who was offended. The father couldn't just forgive him and restore him without payment. And family, that's the picture of the gospel. That's the picture of the gospel. We need an elder brother to rescue us. Not from pagan land, not from eating from pigs, but a brother who will pay our debt, not with a robe, not with a fattened calf, but with his own life to bring us into the family of God. And Hebrews chapter 11 tells us this, verse 2, that Jesus, for he, Jesus, who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, those who have been set apart, and those who are sanctified have the same source. That's why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. NIV says of the same family. Jesus is the elder brother of every believer. And the most important blessing we gain by having Jesus as our elder brother is entry into the family of God. He's not only the elder brother, he's the son of God. And by the grace of God, 
We are adopted into the family of God because Jesus is the rightful heir son. He's the true and better elder brother. Not the Pharisee type, but the true and elder brother that came down from heaven to earth, became like one of us, yet without sin, and at an infinite cost to himself, died in our place, paying our sin debt. He was stripped naked on the cross. His robe was pulled off of him so that we could be clothed, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. He drank the wrath of the Father's anger towards sin so that we could drink of the Father's love at the banquet in the kingdom of God. When you see that, when you see that gospel truth, whether you're the younger immoral brother, sister running off, or you're the elder brother thinking that you have got it all together, when you see the truth of the gospel, the truth that our, younger, our elder brother has died in our place, that will change your heart. You'll come home if you're eating in a pig pen. You'll not look down on others, recognizing all that Christ had to do to bring me into his family. How dare I look down at anyone else? You see, it cost Jesus, the true elder brother, his life so that he could bring us into the feast of God. Because of the work of the true elder brother, we get an assurance that someday, someday we can enter into the banquet of God. Home with our God, where he will wipe away every disease, deformity, and death. Hunger, poverty, hatred, racism, and injustice will be no more. All our sins will be washed away at the homecoming feast. Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-defined, refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He, God, will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. If anything we take away from this, the gospel shows us that it is not our moral record. It's not what we do. It's not our performance that invites us to come. It's Christ. It's his moral record. It's his performance. It's his work on the cross that makes it possible to come. Pride shatters when we look at the cross and realize all that Christ had to do. And Christ invites the elder brother, the elder brother, the elder sisters to come to their senses, repent of their trust in their moral performance and attitudes of superiority and come to faith and trust in the gospel. Christ invites the younger brothers to come to the sense, stop living in the pig pen, and come home to the feast of God. So family, the question for us is how are we going to respond to this parable? How are we going to respond? Are we, are we going to be running away and running after things away from the Father's house? Are we going to stand outside because of all that we have done thinking God's going to accept and love me simply because I, I keep doing what I'm doing? Do I look down on them? Am I resentful? Do I, do, I, do I not have joy when I see a broken, wicked, sinful man, woman come to faith? Or am I rejoicing? Am I recognizing we all come the same way? And that is through the cross. You know, I've said this many times. I identify with both sons. I came to faith as the wandering prodigal son living in the pig pen in all kinds of wicked, dark places. But then growing in self-righteousness after I came to faith, 
until the truth of the gospel began to take root in my heart. That's why it's so important to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. I still need to drink the gospel, drink deeply of the gospel. It'll keep me from wandering off, and it'll keep me from that self-righteous, self-centered, look-at-me sin in my life. I hope this parable speaks to your heart. I hope it does for a long time. That when you read this parable, you remember there's two ways to sin. I'm going to do what I want, or I'm going to do everything I can to earn it. And Jesus says, no. No. My righteousness alone. As the band comes up, I just want to say one last thing. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter how far you ran or how much you're looking in in your self-righteousness. God calls us all to come to the gospel. His name is Jesus. He lived that moral, perfect, righteous life you will never live. He died an atoning death in your place, taking your sin, your wrath that you deserve upon himself. And the only way of salvation is through faith, through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone will bring us into the family, to the banquet of God. Let us pray. Father, I can only imagine in a room the size that there's elder brothers and sisters and there's younger brothers and sisters, Lord. Um, Two different ways for self-salvation, self-justification, Lord. So God, we pray that you would, as we sing, that you would stir our hearts. We may be truthful with ourselves. You already know the truth. And that, Father, our hearts and our minds will be centered upon the truth of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. Christ rose from the grave. And Lord, that we would live as Paul would say, in line with the gospel, in step with the gospel. Help us, Father, as we leave this place to remain humble, usable. Help us, Lord, to seek you, not to get stuff, but to know you better, to get you. And Father, and now as we respond and we sing, Father, we pray that you would get glory and you would fill us with joy and that we would see the truth of the gospel. And his name is Jesus. Amen.